Podcast, the only book club podcast that is certain to show up to any house party, housewarming even, with just a full-on ham. Just a full, cooked, big old honey glaze, masterpiece, slathered in some kind of sauce, ready to eat, ready to be put into sandwiches, ready for consumption, Amanda. We're ham-laden here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you feeling weighed down by any ham today? Did you have ham for dinner? I did not. No, I had fish. Yeah, <laughs> a much more reasonable option. Sometimes you just can't go all in on a full ham. It's true. I mean, the only time really that I eat ham is is for uh, Thanksgiving. My holiday dad makes foods. A really good ham. Yeah, one of the holiday foods. I completely agree with that. Yeah, that's. It is not a common daily or weekly preparation. I would say, as as yeah. noted in the story, it lasts for a long time though, so you can really load up on some ham. I mean, split pea soup, right? Like, man. I love split pea soup. I love Mm -hmm. it. I don't know why. It's creamy and kind of savory. I don't know. It's so filling. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of my secret favorites. Before I go too long on a tangent about split pea soup, though, let's get get to brass tacks. (laughs) Let's get to business here. If you have absolutely no clue why we're talking about ham and all of its various iterations, that is because you have found a book club episode, which are analytical deep dive episodes here on the podcast. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at that title or at that handle, I guess, all one word, at the Lightly Literary Podcast. We do book recommendation episodes and book club analysis episodes today's will be about uncommon type which is a short story collection by tom hanks of acting fame Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was gonna say a movie but i don't know what's the go-to movie mine's castaway but i doubt that's the public's maybe forrest gump yeah, it was the Academy winner. It was the Best Picture winner. So that that or would be Apollo reasonable. Or Apollo thirteen, maybe. I think yeah. Or Sleepless in Seattle. So yeah. Or um, what was the one from the eighties? Big. Yeah, as you can tell by us just freestyle riffing, he has a lot of iconic films <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and many iconic roles. And so we decided to pick this book, which again, well, not we, it was your pick. I'll let you explain it in a second. But yeah, this is a short story collection by Tom Hanks. This again will be a book club episode, so we'll be analyzing the first half of those short stories, which we'll kind of announce in a second. Do you want to set up why you chose this book, Amanda? It is your pick. I was... um in the bookstore and it was like New York Times bestsellers and I was like okay well well, I'm gonna find something that's a bestseller because I don't normally read necessarily bestsellers I was like I'm mm-hmm. gonna try it out mm-hmm. and I saw Tom Hanks and I was like what that can't be the real Tom Hanks and I turned the back and I was like it is Tom Hanks and I was like well I have to try it because yeah I mean he's an actor he reads scripts a lot and definitely he, he's got to know storyline and stuff right so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> And you would think as an actor, too, like, the ability to characterize and get into a character's head would be, like, really great. So I thought I'd try it out. Yeah, see how the skills translate. I will right. say that we have a sort of, not ignoble, like, ig- ignominious, uh, sort of a poor history picking non-writers because I chose the Trevor Noah book, which um, neither of us responded that well to. I, I especially criticized it, Amanda, maybe a bit more neutral. And I think, wasn't there one other pick? I guess that's the only one, right? So that's the history. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's pretty much it. Yeah. So we'll see by the end of this episode and the next one, of course, this is only part one. We'll see how Tom Hanks's prose holds up against that. But yeah, our second pick with a non-writer person on the pod. Do you want to set up the stories that we'll be spoiling? Sure. We um, did the first half. So we did uh, the first one is three exhausting weeks all the way to the story. Who's who? 
Yes, and I think we were supposed to go further, but I... That was my bad. I read under instead of over, so I messed that up. But that's it's what we'll good. be spoiling. Yeah, hopefully it was the next one good. <laughs> uh, it was one of the ones that I was going to talk about oh, in cool. a more positive fashion. Okay, cool. Yeah, then we'll leave it for <laughs> next time, I suppose. Yeah, sorry about the, the incorrect cutoff. Let's dive right in. So the format for book, we had to discuss this because obviously with short story collections and book clubs, we're not going to talk about each one. I just think timing-wise that would not fit our format here. So instead, we each chose two stories each, and so four total. We, we split them across each other. And yeah, we'll talk about the stories. We'll talk, you know, kind of summarize them, discuss what they're about, and then do some analysis. Each of us has different things prepared for each one but yeah just for clarity's sake we will not be discussing every short story nor frankly do i feel even that passionate about doing so uh because they are not all worth it so (laughs) that's my quick review of this book so far do you want me to start with one of mine or do you want to start with one of yours let's start with one of yours Okay, we'll go in order here. Let's start with Three Exhausting Weeks. It is the opening short story of this collection. It is about an unnamed protagonist, I think. I only looked for a couple minutes to find his name. Did you find it? Uh, I didn't really look that hard either, to yeah. be honest. It's an unnamed male protagonist in li- middle age, I would say is pretty sa- is a safe description of him based on his life conditions and kind of, I don't know, lifestyle, attitude, everything. Um, definitely along in his career, because it mentioned how he had a career and then kind of gave it up and has settled into, like, financial work and anyway. So... Let's dive into the story again. Three exhausting weeks. Quick summary here. This unnamed protagonist, um, he's gift shopping with an old high school pal named Anna. They spend the day shopping looking for a gift for their friend M-Dash, who is becoming naturalized and is going to become a U.S. citizen. So he, I think, emigrated from West Africa... Oh, I think they named the country in another story, but now I can't recall. Anyway, they're shopping for their pal, and after a day shopping, and then they have some dinner and some wine and beer, they have pretty reluctant at first, but then enjoyable sex, and they fall into a kind of relationship. So soon after that night, they begin dating, I guess. They have a hard time defining it, but they spend a lot of time together. What the story quickly reveals then after they spend time together is that Anna is going to run his life. She's going to demand... Every she dictates every moment of his day. She tells him what to wear and what haircut to have and how to spend his time and where he'll be when. <laughs> and so it becomes a series of kind of dictations by her. She makes him get up more earlier, uh, more earlier. She makes him get up earlier than usual. She makes him exercise a lot more than usual, spend his evenings kind of in a planned manner, watching only documentary films. I think she's the type that only wants to learn something from watching TV, <laughs> doesn't want to just watch for fun or for fiction or for story. But, you yeah. know, they continue to have pretty good and enjoyable sex. So that's something. How did this... Um, how did the development strike you? Because I think it it took me a couple of these paragraphs to realize what the story was trying to do. At first, I thought it was just really awful characterization. And then I was like, oh, no, never mind. I actually see what he's, you know, the, the conflict he's going to press. Yeah. Um, I thought that it was pretty obvious from the very get-go, like with, mm-hmm. with the very first instance of her saying no it's not going to uh choosing the the present the the gift for m dash right um and how particular she was versus how he was like the first thing is like oh yeah this this looks great it's got like you know some symbolism associated with it or whatever it's fine 
and then like the first time they hooked up i was like okay yeah so it is gonna go very poorly (laughs) yeah definitely i think there's a line we can come back to and scrutinize but when they when they first do have sex that first night she does say something like this isn't going to be work or this will be fun or i forget what it is so maybe that threw me off where i was just like oh they you know it's a casual anyway so their lives start to intertangle they start kind of dating it's a couple weeks past his friends, including M-Dash, do express doubt about this working. They just convey that it doesn't seem to fit his lifestyle and they don't seem right for each other. And the, the story kind of climaxes with a really utterly depressing kind of trip, quote-unquote, like a vacation, but not. She's It's a work trip for her to Fort Worth, Texas, a romantic place of much sightseeing, I'm sure. <laughs> I've never been, but I don't think there's anything to do there. Who knows? Oh, no. You know, there's, I shouldn't say that. There's something to do in every city. You can spend a fun weekend in literally any town on Earth, basically. But yeah, the trip does not go well. They break up. He um, happily gets back to his old lifestyle of eating full breakfast and not counting calories and and running every day. And so he just is not the man for her. I believe her quote is, it ain't the man for me. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so they end the story by splitting up amicably. There's no blowout. There's nothing like that. And she dates someone else, but that doesn't last. So it's kind of a just mutual parting. Mm hmm. And they remain, like, really close friends, which is nice. Yeah, of course. Love to see that. Let's dig into some details. What did you think of her manners of speech? I thought, so, the stories, I wouldn't say they're short on trying for strong characterization, but I I think they come up short in a lot of cases. I think her character, for all of its kind of simplicity in a way, and maybe over-explained nature, it did have some unique twists in it. I'll, I'll give a quick example. Her manners of speech with him, now again, this is repeated a ton, so it's not like you can miss this. <laughs> I don't know if everyone would assess it the same way. But she often has these ways of speaking to him like he's a child, um, certainly emphasizing the conflict between them, takes away his independence and obviously changes his lifestyle. So her calling it saying attaboy and kind of giving him it it's almost like she's a half football coach or half sports coach mixed with like a parent and i thought it was kind of creepy and so i i could imagine i don't know i just imagining like having a you know sustained romantic relationship with somebody who speaks to you like like a child uh they never really play up the tension of it it's he never has a breaking point where he's like and i felt demeaned by that or something but i did appreciate the repeated kind of oh she speaks almost in slogans or something yeah mm-hmm yeah the uh the add a baby and I, I think that you put it perfectly. She is like a coach, right? The, yeah, the way that she yeah. talks to him. So she's in a position of grooming him and making him better as a person, which indicates that she doesn't think that he is currently good enough and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, I I think that uh, the the language is pretty good to show that she's, she's very much... Um, of the opinion that she needs to change him. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And yeah. then, but you know, she's also happy to cut loose at the end and doesn't belabor it and doesn't kind of drag it out. She even yeah. says that if you, I forget what the weird bar was. She said, um, you know, she's a very external, mo- externally motivated person. So it's, it was like, if you didn't finish the class or if you didn't accomplish some task, I was going to, you know, end it anyway. So <laughs> strange, strange times. And it's what, like it, the yeah. tryouts, right? Like I, I've never tried mm-hmm. out for a sport, but uh, my brother did. And you you do the most rigorous, like, I mean, soul-crushing stuff at the beginning to make those first cuts, right? So it's like he was mm-hmm. 
she was running him through his paces there to see if he could make the first cut and then the second cut. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What did you make of the characterization work in this story? Because looking back when I was trying to think of the two I'd prefer to discuss, this was this was up there for character work alone. Because it, I don't know, she's not, it's not the most richly developed person and it, she's manipulative in such blatant ways. And he does kind of just acquiesce to it all. So I don't, I don't know it, but it, it did stand out as something a little stronger. Um, yeah, I think that as far as uh, character work, that's also what I was looking at in this particular story. Um, the main character is meant to be kind of like this boring guy and stuff, but I, I like that we do get some of his thoughts. Um, she seems more almost like a caricature in some ways. Um, yeah. But I've also met pe- people like that, so... <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, okay, well, that, that seems believable. What really um, was interesting to me was uh, the relationship among the guys. Um, so the when they're talking about, on page 20, um, when they're talking about Anna and the protagonist's um, relationship, and he's like, you know, kind of not wanting to talk about it, and they, they keep kind of hounding him I liked that exchange I think that was probably my favorite part was um was them just talking about it because I don't know I I thought that I got to see more of the dynamic of um their group because the the group itself is also really important and we also see the same group come up in in another story um which was the Alan Bean plus four story. Yeah, which I hated, by the way. I thought that I was a baffling really allegory like or something. I didn't understand yeah. that, not even like 1%. I was like, I don't know what... <laughs> it, the, the hilarious part about that later story was that he thought what he established was so interesting that he could do something experimental with it later, and it was just like the most profoundly unearned, like, these were already kind of paper-thin characters, and now you want to do this insane incredible twist like building your own little universe and i i thought it was absurd i was like this is awful (laughs) yeah if he would have just also okay so it's the same narrator who's who's narrating that story right Mm -hmm. but the narrative voice is totally different yeah it's like it's like a whole new character but we're meant to believe that it's the same character i was like uh (laughs) so weird yeah truly inexplicably weird i didn't even (laughs) I don't even understand if it was literally occurred or if they just had a fun weekend, like with an art project or if we were, it was like, I was so off uh, with that. I was off, off board, (laughs) not on board. Yeah. I meant to look up some of like some of the stuff that he had mentioned there. And I was just like, and I meant to look it up and I just never did it because I immediately yeah. like forgot about it. Afterwards. Some flat illusions, some flat illusions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's discuss one other stylistic thing and then we can move on from this one. Cause we don't want to, you know, we're going to balance all the stories a bit. Yeah. I knew I was in trouble with enjoying this collection and perhaps thinking of him as an interesting stylist because in his first story here, Amanda, he takes on writing about romance and sex and he fumbles it. I mean, horribly. Like there are some yeah. truly cringeworthy expressions in this in this book, written by I don't, I don't know what year or age notebook you'd find it in, but I'm going to guess between like a 14 and 16 year old like diary or notebook of some kind, some kind of teen. Uh, the two that stood out to me the most 
One was at some point they're showering together and the and then the narrator says, and we touched each other in our wonderful places. Doesn't that sound like a euphemism you'd find in like a pamphlet uh, at like a church pew or something? Or yeah, maybe and I was mi- thinking yeah. uh, definitely definitely something that's that's meant to be chased. So I was like, Oh, is he is he trying for YA? Like <laughs> Yeah. It, and it's obviously with sexual things, we've covered a couple books that we've covered a couple books that deal um, pretty well with describing sex. Yeah, being hyper literal is also not the answer, but such a bland euphemism. My God, just awful. Like, yeah. d- deeply uninteresting. Um, another time, I think he went for something a little bolder. There's a text exchange between him and his buddies about why this is such a bad idea. And in the text exchange, one of them says, you can't have too many, or if you have too many cooks, you'll burn the stew. Some, something to that extent. Like, you don't want to hook up with her. Or you don't want to be with her because, you know, you're going to you're gonna burn the stew. You're going to ruin this. And so in the next paragraph, as kind of an illusion, the narrative allusion to that reference, he says that that night we made love like two stew cooks in Green Bay, Wisconsin. What, what, what's the, what? <laughs> like, a place known for stew making i guess what's the what's the specificity of the point of that like cuz it's a cold place they make heartier stews also what is a stew chef like what what does that even mean what's the joke i don't it's like it's such a baffling strange transition I, I kind of liked, like you said, the rapport between the guys, like, making fun of each other's advice. It was maybe a little too convivial or, like, annoyingly so to me. But I was like, okay, they're bantering. It's, it's like, that stuff was uh, pretty good. But then, yeah, yeah, to use that in the narrative voice and have that expression about, like, we did it like the expert. I, I was just like, this simile doesn't work at all. It makes no sense. It's not funny. I think it's meant to be. It's meant to be, like, a little narrative wink-wink uh, from the narrator. I don't know. I thought that one that one also made me cringe. So that's when I realized in this collection, Amanda, that we might be in some kind of trouble. Because I thought those moments were <laughs> deeply, deeply misplaced or got misguided, I suppose, and like had no interesting there's no interesting language to support anything. Yeah, for sure. That one that is a good point. And that was also something that I was just like as I was reading, I was like, Oh, I had such high hopes. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough to take Uh, on. And now granted, romance, obviously, I say tough to take on. Romance is one of the cornerstones of the literature uh, history of all of humankind. Like, obviously, you write about romance. Like, most stories involve some kind of romantic entanglements, if not sex, like, you know, love stories. But so it's not like it's that surprising to see it open with a love story. But I was surprised that he would directly reference sex, but then did so, like, clearly just turned his eyes away when it was time to write about it. (laughs) When it was like, let's convey an emotional state. Let's convey these characters in this intense exchange, in this moment together. And he just kind of blinked away and was like stew cooks in green bay are wonderful play it was just like oh no this is not gonna <laughs> this is not gonna attempt artistic things that i will admire and think about this is just like kind of moving to the next plot point it, i i suppose we shouldn't be that surprised though because even in his movies do you recall any like super steamy moments right. in his movies like no. i don't no um sleepless in seattle has uh, some heart you know heart swelling intensity to it i suppose but i mean yeah most even most films in the mainstream don't really dare upon 
really in- inventive, interesting stuff with with sex. I guess some do, but it, anyway, yeah. I just that was the thing that gave me pause in story one. Let's move to story two, or let's move to another one. Amanda, what do you want to pick for to start with here? Um, the one that I chose is actually story number two, I think, in the collection. Uh, which oh, okay. is Yeah, Christmas Eve, nineteen fifty-three, um, is the title, and it's about Virgil, um, also known as Virgin. Um, he's a family man with the picture perfect family. There's a loving wife he is still very much attracted to, a son who relishes his role as protector of the truth of Santa, um, a daughter who is trusting and sweet, and another baby daughter. He's successful at his company and he's doing really well for himself as head of the family, despite his missing leg and a severely damaged hand. Um, this Christmas Eve, like all Christmas Eves, he waits to talk on the phone with his old military buddy, Amos, also known as Buddy. And they catch up. And then there's a flashback to World War II um, when Virgil lost his leg specifically. But Buddy had to finish the war on the front while uh, Virgil was confined to the hospital um, and then was discharged um, a bit early because of his injuries. Um, Buddy, because he had to, you know, finish the war and saw so many atrocities, apparently lost pieces of himself along the way. There is like a, um, like a, a, an example of him, like possibly he'd never, Virgil, Virgil never confirmed it, possibly like murdering, um, a Nazi soldier that he had pulled out of line who was trying to seek refuge somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and then the phone call ends and Virgil goes to bed where he has the same haunting image in his mind every night before he falls asleep. And it is the shot he took um, on the night that he lost his leg that killed a German soldier. Mm-hmm. So he, he always sees that one image of like his the German soldier's head like pretty much exploding from the bullet. Right. Chooses and, to sort of suppress that. Has some PT, clear right. PTSD, though. Exactly. And uh, and that's pretty much the end of the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a simple um, tale. It's really just a phone call. It's it is understated. I will say that this story gave me not hope in the collection, but I thought it was it was almost a purposeful purposeless short story, which I kind of dig. I, I like when a story kind of doesn't have a maybe such a clear plot climax kind of simple construction just because i think that's kind of the fun of short stories is you can take little snapshots of things and not have to be so beholden to that logic but this also i don't know when they talk on the phone the characterization it just feels like checking boxes or something to me like it's all it's there you know they're clearly distant from each other there's begrudging respect there's like some dialect kind of you know slang between it's like friendly but it just doesn't have a kind of it doesn't like dare upon anything it just feels very flat or safe to me yeah it's um and for something that would require i think so much uh, comparison, like what I liked about it too, is like he's trying to uh, almost contrast what Virgil's life is like now, which is like perfect and in every way and peaceful and loving and warm and all these other things, right? Versus the flashback of like the atrocities that he had seen and and the death that he had seen and and had also committed and stuff. Yeah. So it's. 
I I found that to be like, oh, okay, so I think that's what he's going for here, but the actual execution of it and and the he could have really I don't know, the descriptions that he gave, especially of like the wartime and stuff, it's coming yeah. off of like if you read um the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. Like you don't have to be gory, right? With and you can still make something atrocious and like um, heartrending and just terrible without having to to get into details about like you know blood and gore and stuff like that. Um, but it, Tom Hanks here, he, his he has a little bit of gore. Like he does talk, like give us that image of the guy with uh, that gets shot in the head. But then, like, it, the rest of his descriptions, just they're not evocative enough for me, I think is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's well said. It's Let me pull some language. Actually, the quote I was going to pull from this story was also about the fighting, because it is such a strong moment. You think this could just be a domestic, a little domestic scene with, like, no flashbacks, but hints? Like, when, it, when for example, when the story first mentions that he doesn't have a leg, that got my attention, because up until that point, I was thinking, what is this kind of, like, bland, leave it to beaver, 1950s family drama of the most, you know, vanilla variety? And then that gets introduced. It mentions that he had a ghost family phantom pain where his leg was and it and up to that point it hadn't said what happened of course you know given the time frame it's not hard to guess but i still thought like okay let's let's see what this story twists or turns into but like let me read um from some of the stuff the battle stuff from the flashback the outfit came under artillery fire in the Belgian woods, and some guys were blown apart, vaporized. Then Virgil, Bud, and the outfit were spent mar- sent marching the other way through uh, Bastogne, Bastogne proper. They passed a neatly arranged stack of dead soldiers just outside the church, burnt out, useless tanks with their treads thrown off, and a pair of cows eating hay a farmer had stocked. The farmer and the cow seemed oblivious to the Germans who were trying to retake the port at Antwerp and to the general hullabaloo. The cold cut them all to the bone. It was inescapable. The cold killed some men in the outfit. Sleep was so so rare, some guys went nuts and had to be sent back. The hope was that they could gather themselves so that they could return to the cold and the fighting. It, you know, little glances, but like, what do we get here? They were blown apart, vaporized. I don't even know if that term is, it's not metaphorical, but also literally, I don't think that's correct. <laughs> I, don't, I guess I could be wrong, but I'm not sure if that's what vaporization is technically. Anyway, um, a neatly arranged stack of dead soldiers, burnt out, useless, like that list is not, I don't know. It's like, there's a contrast there with the cow, but I, I don't know. It's not really trying to portray the the senselessness I don't think or nor is it trying to show the tranquility of normal life compared to war so like it's just kind of there I'm not really sure and then of course the cold cuts to the bone and we've got a cliche like come on that's not yeah that that's a cliched expression <laughs> it is yeah, so it I, is. it's just that paragraph on the whole it, it's kind of what I mentioned with the checking boxes vibe it does things I just named some <laughs> but I don't know it's um I can't say it was meaningful or, or I, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm going to stammer if I keep talking about it, but it's, it definitely did not move me. Yeah. It's like you said, it, it's like a list, right? So mm-hmm. as you're reading that paragraph, he doesn't get into any of the details. There's nothing really that, that grabs you that would be like, oh, that's an interesting detail or anything. It's just a list of things that he sees that he encounters 
and that's it. And and you're just like, oh, okay. The the one element of that that stood out was the, the cold in that he Tom Hanks takes the pains to really focus on the idea of warmth as a contrast at his home, right? Mm-hmm. At, at yeah. uh, Virgil's home, where everything is... The car, he complains about how the car isn't warm enough. Um, he stokes the fire. He keeps the fire burning. He talks about how much he loves how his house is the warmest house on the block. And and then at the, in the final scene when he's going to bed, he's got like a million blankets that he throws on himself to keep himself warm. Like, that's like the most interesting thing that that he attempts with like motif and symbolism i suppose yeah but it's also just like that's that's something that anybody could do because the idea of the cold in war is it's such a tried and true and accepted thing right and then you're mm-hmm. going to contrast something that everybody associates with war like not everybody i suppose but that people who read literature would associate with death and with you know war and stuff like that it's just like that it's such a i don't want to say lazy but it's just like not it's not intriguing it's not a motif that really makes you sit up and say wow that was really unique yeah and it has very little interest in it's odd though for a person with a kind of typewriter fetish it has a little interest in language as i view it like it's we always say this and i'll I'll say it again this may as well be my mantra but i just prefer prose that is from someone who was a poet and then just started writing prose and like i don't read a lot of poetry i don't pretend to I, i can engage with it if i if i need to or you know on the one or two times a year i really want that energy or that rhythm i will but it's like i want a poet who then who transitions you know like because I, I want the instinct to be for the for the unique idea for the literary device for the approach to describing something you know and so yeah. i just didn't it just feels more interested in summary and kind of story beats um which you know fiction needs that too what did you make of the wife character Man, I, character is a strong word. I feel like she is yeah. like <laughs> she was. She was there. She was uh, the the prototype, right? Or not prototype, but she's an archetype. Yeah. Um. So, but there's nothing unique about her except maybe that she smokes. But at that time, like shit, everybody smoked back then. So, <laughs> I mean, she uh, she has a real feeling of I could almost I I didn't use these words to be to be fair. I'm making these words up, but I would have been shocked if either of the guys in the story called her abroad. It just had that kind of 1950s man tone about it. Like, ah, she's a good broad, you know, yeah. that sort of energy. Yeah, she oh, doesn't yeah. really exist. And also, his friend does say something like. Like, ah, you took her up, you know, you had to be the, the, the bum that got her from us and kind of like treating her in that prized possession sense. And it's funny because that's obviously a sort of, I don't know, a possessive, certainly toxic way to view a partner or something. And you would think the story would comment on it. It just doesn't, though. It's like she she certainly has a, a peacefulness about her and a calm, but it also doesn't like rise above that. So it's to its detriment i guess it's not really i can't criticize it harshly because she's really not in it much (laughs) but yeah all the other like his entire family is just meant to be this this 
the ideal American family, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. the boy is like the protector over his sisters, his younger sisters. Okay, check. Mm-hmm. Um, his sister is naive and sweet and um, is very loving. Okay, check mark. The the young there's a, a baby. Okay, check. And the yeah. wife is a homemaker and she's um, very loving and caring to her kids and she still is able to uh, maintain her husband's attraction. Okay, check. Like, it's all just... Yeah. It's exactly, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's almost too comfortable in a weird way for a story about PTSD. It just feels, yeah, yeah too content or too bland or something. Anything yeah. else to say about it? No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Let's move to a couple more. We, we each picked two, so I'm going to I'll introduce my next one. It is Welcome to Mars. I will say up front, this is my favorite so far. I think this is the best one. For, for my, you know, for my dollar. We'll see how you responded to it, but it's this is the one that I think stood out to me the most. So, Welcome to Mars uh, has a father and son at the heart of it. Frank and Kirk Ullin are their names. Um, they haven't gone surfing in a while, and Kirk is kind of growing up. He's the kid. I think it's his 18th birthday, right? 19th? 19th. 18th would have been a bit, bit more symbolically potent given the events but that's okay it's the same (laughs) same vibe anyway um (laughs) this is a little after his birthday or maybe even on it is it on the birthday it's on his birthday yes okay either way he's transitioning to manhood and you'll figure out why that matters by the end of the story (laughs) you'll get to the disillusionment eventually so um let's yeah it's it's birthday-ish and he's clearly about to become a man etc they decide to go down to the beach together to do their old ritual and and have a surf they eat a hearty breakfast you know real man food the men in these stories definitely love big breakfast so i can't help but wonder if that's a tom hanks thing as well they they love a hearty breakfast (laughs) (laughs) Signs of a true man. Anyway, and um, there's some kind of a little backstory about how the father, this again will matter later. There's some allusions to how the father has had kind of a passive but crucial role. The family seems like they're they're very combative and he just seems like kind of a peacekeeper, passive figure, friendly kind of guy. Is that, I don't know if that's, is that summary incorrect? <laughs> no, I think that's right. Yeah, something that's, uh, threw a bunch of descriptions out there, obviously, but that, that feels kind of right to me anyway they eventually get to the beach they enjoy a few nice waves they're catching some catching some uh crests i don't what's this do you know surfing lingo <laughs> catching but, some no surf uh, cowabunga i don't yeah all right catching some cowabunga <laughs> they're out there cowabunga-ing as the verb would obviously go and then his dad as he alluded to earlier has to go take a business call so he does that and in the meantime kirk is alone and he suffers a serious accident i think it describes his calf exploding like a sausage like a kielbasa yeah. or something i was like okay yeah. that was inventive you know it was pretty gross anyway so he has an injury that's serious so he goes off to find his father walks around the neighborhood and eventually ends up in a Starbucks parking lot. This is where the story, of course, climaxes. He discovers that his father is in a Mercedes-Benz with a brunette woman who is not his mother, and they are flirting, and I believe he sees them kiss. That's when he turns away and kind of walks away. So he's now literally gutted, emotionally gutted. He's bleeding, and he's scarred, and so he wanders across the street. Eventually, his father meets him and, you know, comments on the injury and says, God, we got to go get, you know, emergency care. Got to go take care of this. And then they prepare to go to the emergency room, and it ends kind of, you know, abruptly, which for me, in a short story I, I do like i do enjoy i already mm-hmm. mentioned it's been my favorite so far amanda what are your impressions of this one i really liked this one i think that the character work actually for the main character kirk is probably the best out mm-hmm. of all the stories um and i also like the and i'm i'm, I'm 
as I'm reading, I'll just say this really quickly. As I mm-hmm. read short story collections, I always try to figure out what is the connection between these short stories, right? Here, he, Tom Hanks uses typewriters specifically as a mm-hmm. visual thing, I suppose, to tie it all together. But I'm thinking maybe thematically, it might be like the idea of... Um, Maybe not disillusionment, but a change in perspective, like changing perspectives. Right. It might be the, the thematic thread to follow through here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So <clears throat> that uh, reading this story in particular is what really made me think of, oh, okay, so maybe this is what he is thematically tying everything uh, together. So that's that's something that I keep in the back of my mind as I continue to read these stories. Um but yeah, I, I think this one, out of the group, this one and, uh, yeah, this one was the best one. And I think that it had, mm-hmm. specifically because of the description of the injury itself, I was like, oh, great. Okay, so that's some, that's a unique thing. And I was like, and it makes sense. Like, you don't really think of sausage, like, in that way. But yeah, once you cut into a sausage, everything just kind of like spills out of it. So that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I liked that. And and I think that he's, he does the best um, job here with characterization, with playing with some of the language mm-hmm. and, and, and even like the dad's uh, character work there where he's a saint until he's not. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some interesting early moments. I thought that their exchanges were, again, there's some attempted personality and kind of dialect work here. I'll read a quick exchange between them on 93. He's waking him up, um, asking if he wants to go surfing. Okay, Kirk said, stretching with yawn. I'm coming. No law against staying under the covers. Let's do it. You sure? You trying to avoid getting you wet yourself? No way, knothead. Then I'll be your huckleberry. And then they say, excellent breakfast, fit for a long haul trucker. So... I, there's some teasing, right? You're trying to avoid getting wet yourself. They're ribbing each other. But what do you think of Knothead Huckleberry? It does feel... I don't know. There's, a, I guess this is Tom Hanks's charm. He's like the all-American white man who just... And his characters speak like it really often. They just have these tones and expressions that are... It feels like a buttoned-up shirt or something where it's you see what it's going for, this casual, playful ribbing between them. But like not head and I'll be I know that I'll be your Huckleberry is an illusion. I forget to what it's a famous reference, but it just doesn't feel daring enough for my own interest to get peaked, I guess. And that's, you know, my own personal aesthetic literary preference. But that's an exchange like that just shows that it's clearly it, the attempt is there. There's a, something happening. But, um, you know, I'm not not moved. <laughs> Yeah, this one, um, I think that he was the closest to actually accomplishing what I think he he meant to accomplish with these stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, For sure. And and he does try for descriptions. It's just that sometimes his descriptions are just... boring like <laughs> yeah it's a little bit too much summary put it yeah it's a little too yeah. much summary it's a little too functional i think yeah a little yeah, too exactly, easy yeah mm-hmm. and i mean I, you can yeah. clearly see what he wants you to see but there's nothing interesting about the way that he's saying it 
Definitely. I think that the credit I'll give this one and why it's been my favorite, the resolution, as I mentioned, is very abrupt. He does not linger. There's no dramatic scene of him interrupting the father, which, of course, would have been, you know, melodrama at that point, which is fun, but mm-hmm. different. And so this was a quieter, more appropriate internal ending for, for both characters. And then I think the, again, it's obvious symbolism. That's fine. Nothing wrong with being obvious. But the, the whole internal-external wound combo, the whole idea of his, you know, him looking at his father as sort of the man he needs to protect him and now he's uncertain and he has this urgent need but now it's of course he's upon daring upon manhood himself it's his 19th birthday so there's that transitionary piece and yeah it's i just thought it was probably the most coherent symbolic thing that came together again using a, a gaping wound like that's maybe a bit obvious but i'm okay with it it, it wasn't it didn't not work <laughs> double negative for you yeah, I, I think that even though it was obvious, at least he attempted it, right? It's kind of like with um, the Christmas Eve story, right? The the motif with the cold versus the warmth. Like, I mean, that's super obvious, but I mean, at least it's it's an attempt at a stylistic device. Do you want to pick some descriptions from the surfing? Because that was the only other thing I was going to pick from this one as well, because it is, it's kind of like when the war flashback happened in the other story. It's the clearest moment of like, well, if you want to display your literary chops, now's your time. You know, now you have a, a moment of real actual in, kind of momentum and velocity and intensity and so was it anything jump out to you from there yeah so this is from page 104 in my copy um as ever the curl closed on him the water smacked him on the head and he wiped out no big deal turning in the white water he relaxed as he had learned long ago letting the wave roll beyond him and allow him to time to find the surface and fill his lungs but the ocean is a fickle mistress mars indifferent to human effort um and I'll skip down to he felt for the sandy bottom, knowing the next monster was about to crush him. He lunged up for a breath, sucking in air, seeing seven feet of white water roaring down on him. Uh, he ducked under the wave, blindly felt for the Velcro of his leash and ripped it off his foot so his board would get tossed. So, <laughs> OK, uh, monster, fickle mistress. Um, and just saying that the white curl, the white waves like I, there was nothing <laughs> exciting about any yeah. of those. The, the mistress part too is tough because that is that's like that's almost beyond cliche to the point of being original. That's like so cliche that it's so cliche. almost strange to see it on the page because of how yeah. blatantly it is. <laughs> One, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's like if it's been used in like multiple titles of stories, then it's anyway. Yeah, that's that was strange to see that pop up too. Yeah. <laughs> I felt the same way. (laughs) And it was functional. I think it, you know, credits for the visualization because I could kind of picture the action, even if it's not an activity that I understand. I I comprehend it. I guess I just don't really understand it as I don't do it. But yeah, I was going to pull a quote just like that. You nailed it. It's just... I don't know. It's just there. <laughs> a lot of this just feels like, well, it's here. It's in front of you, right? It's happening. <laughs> but I'm not sure if you're going to notice or remember. But anyway, any yeah, final? That, that, yeah, that's it. It's not memorable. That's exactly it. Yeah. Any final thoughts on the Mars story? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I think I'm good. <laughs> as, a, as a Bill Dung's Roman, it's uh, there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. It is there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and your final story that you chose. Um, I chose a month on Green Street. Um, right on. Yeah. So, divorced B- Betty? Bet? 
either way, this is another wild story of like, I would have guessed this story was taking place in the 50s, but then she has an iPad. There's something strange about his narrative voice. There's something, it's like we give Tom Hanks all this credit for being a timeless, kind of just all-American good dude. And his writing is weirdly timeless, and then all of a sudden it has these references, and I'm like man, what is happening in this kind of the morality in America of these tales? I just, he is a weird worldview, I guess, is all I'm trying to say. It's it's a strange, strange thing to me. Yeah. Who is he talking to? Um, <laughs> who says yowza? Um, yowza. Yeah, I'm your huckleberry. <laughs> so, um, divorced, I'm just going to call her Betty, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, moves her three children to a new, almost aggressively friendly neighborhood um, that has plenty of kids for her kids to play with. She meets her single neighbor, Paul, a professor who is interested in building things and gandering at the cosmos. Um, He's super nice, but Betty is wary of all single dudes at this point, especially when she has uh, visions or, quote, pops of the future. Yes, she is clairvoyant. Um... She spends her time talking shit about him to her friend Maggie on the phone and avoiding him when she's outside, even though he's been nothing but nice and not at all creepy. Um. It was strange. This is another (laughs) odd one, kind of in the first story where I thought I wasn't sure if the characterization was going to do the thing it was doing. This kind of felt similarly where I just felt like, oh, is she going to be kind of hostile to him the whole time? I guess. But it. It's an odd one, too. There's not really an inciting incident. That's the tough part is it's not there's not a moment of eeriness or leeriness or anything from him. It's just sort of she she, coming off of her. She was cheated on and left her husband so that it's coming off of that is her hesitation, which is, you know, as a backstory is understandable enough. But like her kind of biting caustic commentary is it's strange. It's like a bit too much or something. Yeah, she comes out. I mean, she's like. As I was reading some of, like, especially when she's talking to her friend Maggie and and they're talking about, like, um, desperate desperation, uh, dot com or something like that when it, they're talking about him. I was like, yeah, it's, man, that's just, like, bitchy. Like, it's a little, <laughs> really? it's a little sassy or something. I'm not sure what the, yeah. like, can we, I, I don't know if I can come up with a, a non-gendered term for it. Uh, bitchy yeah. certainly has a connotation. <laughs> but uh, I yeah, mean, sorry. I don't, well, no, no, no. I just think if it's there's an easy textual analysis that would say that's what he wrote. I I think he was kind of going for that in a sense, but then it's odd because she's otherwise seems, you know, kind of caring and nice. Yeah. Yeah. Capable with her kids and is attentive. She's when, when she meets the neighbor kids that he has, his children, she's, you know, friendly and jovial and likes cracking a joke and just kind of, you know, abides so it's just weird to see those transitions and and of course then we could think like maybe it's a commentary on friendship or how like her friend influences her but it's like nah it's not deep enough for that reading i don't think it really deserves that reading it's just kind of it's just kind of an imbalanced kind of teeter-totter character yeah uh, it's it was a a weird story i liked this story too for some parts of it um yeah but yeah it was just like what a what a strange story um Eventually, Betty finds Paul's keys on his driveway, and she decides to be neighborly and hang on to them until he gets home. But she then notices a coin on his keychain, and she investigates it and finds out that Paul 
um, has been in Narcotics Anonymous for at least 20 years. And then once she finds that out, all of a sudden, she starts making an effort to know this guy and become friends. It's just like a, a flip switch. She's like, you know what? I want to be friends with this guy. <laughs> which, yeah. which to me, I was just like, what? <laughs> Keep in mind, too, that her you're being too generous in your plot description. When she holds on to the keys, it's because she's concocting a page-long scheme to have someone else return them because she doesn't even want to, like, literally see his face. She's just like, Yeah, one of her is, kids she was going to send yeah, over. Yeah, so that's why. And then she has this whole dilemma about, like, she has her son Google that she, so it's, she wants to spy on him but doesn't want to. It, it had a real... Um, I don't know what the character word for this would be or character trait or human condition, but it's like when people who all they talk about is something, how much they hate it, but they don't have any other interests. And so it's just kind of like, wouldn't it just be easier if you said you were interested or like that thing instead of just, it's like if your personality is all contrarian or all hate based in a sense, I, I know that's a bit extreme because it's not like she hates him, but it's like, we don't really get a sense of her life other than just her disdain and kind of suspicion of him like we know she loves her espresso machine and is a reader but otherwise it's she just spends the rest of the story kind of just trash talking him like she thinks more about hit avoiding him and how much she doesn't want to interact with him more than she interacts with her kids in this story isn't that yeah. true it's, it's just such it a, is it's a weirdly balanced story it's very strange it is very strange and like the entire time he's just like hanging out with her kids and like teaching them stuff and it's just I don't know it's so weird and he's like genuinely a helpful guy because like even the the drug addict that he brings home like it was to help him to help set him up right he was mentoring the guy from Narcotics Anonymous the uh, the redhead that they mentioned yeah yeah and so he's like a, a really nice guy <laughs> just like Man, back off. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for, too, given the cultural climate we're in. I'm all for the let's investigate seeming nice dudes who are creeps or so, sort of who have weirdly their own tendencies of manipulation. And like, I, I'll explore it all. This is just I don't even think it's trying to be that. So then I wonder, is it like an excoriation of this main character? Are we supposed to be really hypercritical of her and her, I don't know, kind of narrow mindedness but then i just don't know if anything comes together in this story i, I do agree with your overall assessment though that it got my attention it, i was like yeah it, it had me kind of hooked or interested but it, I, I don't know I, i'm not sure it's coherent i suppose given my those quick you know analyses i just said yeah and then the in the end when she decides to kind of give give him the benefit of the doubt or whatever um this is from page 141 um, Betty looked down at the keys in Paul's hand at the poker chip that celebrated 20 years of sobriety, two decades, narcotics free. She did some math in her head. Chick Ligaris, uh, who is his son, Paul's son, was at least 21 years old, which would have made him a baby when his father hit his own rock bottom when Paul began his journey from wherever that was to this night in August. In that wink of an eye, Betty was even more assured she and the kids belonged here on Green Street. Yeah, yeah. So the the fact that he had this sordid past, this that he overcame, is what assures her that she's in the right place. And then she's like, all of a sudden, like, you know, she has another pop, another vision, and she's sharing a coffee with him early in the morning and looking through his telescope. Like, right, right, yeah. 
<laughs> so at the time that he mentioned she could he could see what was a Saturn. There's some early morning event that you know the kids say you can it's special, but you got to get up and earn it. And she's like, no. So it does indicate a clear shift for her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, completely different shift. Um, I just I thought that was interesting, but I was like, are we meant to then come to the idea that she feels that she also is coming from like he's he's somebody who overcame this hardship and she's comparing that to her own where she's mm. recently divorced because her husband cheated on her and this is like her rock bottom her her lowest point so now she realizes that he's normal like her there is I, kind of an obvious symbolism too with the the telescope that he can sort of that if she's if she needs a new vision of things vision of humanity mm-hmm. vision of her life right and she's clairvoyant so it's obviously she's burdened with visions in a way there is that kind of connection then about like ah maybe he'll be the one to introduce you know set her up with a new way of seeing things right it's kind of the fact that that's what they agree on in the end does kind of overlap into a reading like that but then yeah. it's just I don't know it's it's uh, it's almost the logic of like I feel like you got to go liar liar you got to go lower to get higher. There's just no moment where she has like a distrust of people or some kind of core issue with human kind. Like it's they, she got the house they wanted. It worked out for her kids. Like the, there's not moments of her depression about the marriage ending. There's no moments of like I, I don't know. It just felt like her total view of this man was really I, I think the characterization with the divorce and the cheating was meant to do a lot more heavy lifting than it earned I, maybe is my other kind of quick analysis where it's just like if this is supposed to be a kind of recovery tale for her then i don't know if the lows were low enough to feel like it warranted recovery she just seems like a well-adjusted person who just really doesn't like this man and it's kind of confusing as to what why <laughs> yeah the only other thing was she had gone on like a terrible date with her dentist who turned out to be like a total narcissist or whatever right and right. and she made a couple of mentions of like how the dating world seemed like a war um, right, and so right. she was like not dating. She was actively not dating. So yeah. that's, but that's it. Like, yeah, will, dating yeah. sucks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I will say by the end of it too, I reread the, a couple of the lines where when they first meet and he does say, and I think the way he phrases it, like, Hey, what are you doing later? And so that sends up her defenses and that re- reads to her as like, you know, a, a, den, a date or getting hit on attempt. And it, but it wasn't though. It was like an invitation for the kids to, you know enjoy the telescope and so yeah uh, yeah i thought maybe the story i think the story thinks that moment is more telling than it is i guess i would just need a little more from him to be a little more off-putting a little stranger again maybe the ham thing we're meant to read is kind of i think there's just things the story is playing up in terms of characterization that i was not it may, it could just be the the analytical mind I have, or maybe it's my biases. But like I think the ham and his appearance is kind of really casual summertime look are meant to read more intensely than I read them to mean. <laughs> like I think in her view, those things are really damning. But I was just kind of like, what's what's wrong with any of this? I, yeah. So part of it could just be my own I don't know lens of seeing the seeing his behaviors. Yeah, it's it's. To, uh, yeah, because she she's obviously very judgmental towards him, compared to especially like the others who she's she's the way that she de- describes the rest of the neighborhood is very positive. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know. It, it was, yeah. And kind of it, like I said earlier, almost like a teeter-totter kind of story. Like, it has weird swings in it that I don't think I fully get the literary or narrative push of. And I'm not sure where the gravity's mm-hmm. coming from. Like, why is it pulling so hard in these directions? Like, I don't... Yeah. There's an imbalance to it that I don't quite get. Any other thoughts or details on this one? Uh, nope, that's it. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah, Overall, okay. favorite story so far? Do you have any preferences? Did you? I'm assuming you picked it. It's got to be one of these four, maybe. Well, yeah. Uh, so I think that my favorite is actually um, the Mars one, and mm-hmm. and then the two that I chose were, were close seconds. Gotcha. I almost thought about picking my least favorite. What was your least favorite? Maybe I should have, actually, and I backed out. I was a coward. What was your least favorite? <laughs> And which one was my least favorite? Um, I would say Alan Bean plus four was it my was, least yeah, favorite. Yeah, definitely the most daring and definitely the worst one. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, got to applaud the creativity, but sometimes it doesn't come together. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. Can you just w- say was that your your least favorite? Yeah, I think so. We're gonna we'll get to my least favorite kind of trend in the in a second. Did you read the Alan Bean plus four thing is literal, or was it meant to be like a weekend project for them, or what's how did you even what's the base what's your baseline comprehension of what occurred in that story? I took it as literal. They literally like, went to a and built a rocket ship and went into outer space together for fun. Yeah, yeah, I took it as literal because like of the the apps and then he's like talking the the rescue in hawaii or off the coast of hawaii that part was strange because that's the only part that blew up my reading my reading was that they had a fun like craft project and the app thing to me was they are using apps to simulate this because you know there's apps for like you can look at the stars and like remember how they they did that little couple pages of like seeing the different craters and like zipping or like you can do that on apps there's like there are such you know detailed photo kind of visualizations of space that you can i just assumed it was them I mean, if it's literal, it's the most insane thing then ever put on the page. Like, I don't, that's like, that's like unhinged. I don't even, it's not the future. It's not sci-fi. It's not, it's like the most insane story ever told then. But I, but it could be, I, given that these characters were already established in a version of our world present day, I have no clue what was happening. Like I didn't even, I could not engage with this at all. Yeah. That was my interpretation though. It was very strange. I was like, this is just Tom Hanks nerding out on space stuff. Yeah, the app inclusion was strange. Well, let's not get into it. It's not worth it, frankly, I I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to end with a couple segments. We always do segments on our part one pod, so let's end with the usual. Let's do Please Continue Make It Stop first. So we each pick out something in these part ones, since we're not done with the work yet, that we'd like to continue and stop. I'll say my Make It Stop, because I already, already was going negative there in that confusing story Uh, (laughs) the interludes from the newspaper man the the inner newspaper interludes the jaded columnist this feels the closest to some kind of nonfiction. i know it's not i know it's a persona of some kind but if you had to say like what would a 65 year old white man in america today sound like the newspaper thing is pretty close 
it's really strong old guy yells at clouds energy coming off of these like a person just trying to comprehend a new world and wishing things were how they used to be wanting to love on his typewriter hating the phone the misspelled section in the second one of these where he you know makes a joke about i'm gonna type something now i'm gonna type it on my phone see how bad phones are at typing on like autocorrect sucks (laughs) i laughed at that but it was totally at him not with him i was like this is the corner as shit i cannot believe that you know a professionally published work this is the level of like insight criticism and critique like this is truly insultingly stupid (laughs) and it just really felt like some kind of time is passing me by let me make quips about it again i i don't think it's this is the funny thing that the fact that it's fiction, right? That could be Tom Hanks doing that too. He could be sending up a person like that. Like I, it's really hard to say I, given how the other characters and all the other stories though, talk some of the slang they use, some of their lifestyles and the kind of pace and energy and the things they do. I just feel like it's close to what he must kind of think. Again, I, you know, it's fiction. So it's a dangerous lens for me to apply. I just want these to go away, though. They're, they're not funny. <laughs> I think they're meant to be. They're not insightful and they're not very, it's not um, incisive satire or something. Like, I could do without these. I I like that he attempted to play with format. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, which is great. And, and I think that short stories are great for um, just playing with the you know, all elements of of literature. However, you have to have a certain amount of skill to pull these things off. And uh, it's nice to to try, but for something like that to be published and and be a New York Times bestseller on top of that. Yeah, Uh, it's buried amongst other better things. I don't know how much better. I just checked and flipped through. I think there's three more of them. So no, it's it's clearly going to be a motif for him. You know, returning kind of. Anyway, yeah, I would not. I don't want those to continue though. Now that I have established how much I dislike them, I am fascinated to keep it going. I I wonder if I'll hate the others as much as I hated that last one with the whole cell phone spelling rant or or what have you. Maybe Um, by the end, this Hank Fissett or whatever the character's name is, maybe he will actually become the voice of the millennials of the of the next generation of, you know, I don't I don't even know what generation he's supposed to be really but <laughs> i would assume baby boomer you know that, okay, there you, you know <laughs> that given his age and predilections and all that what yeah. about your make it stop oh man mine is just please the, the lack of literary elements just i mean the the lack of style of personal authorial style that's what i love about writing is just is being able to really dive into a person's style but Tom Hanks's writing is just mm, he he needs to develop a particular voice and he needs to develop a particular style that is unique to him by being more uh being just better at his his motifs and his symbols and just being less cliched in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless I'm just completely not picking up what what he's like doing here i just it's 
It's yeah, passable, we, but yeah. it's we, not great. We read great. plenty of quotes, and from some of the most poignant moments, right? Some of the most important exchanges we've read, dialogue, dialogue-wise, we read a couple descriptions of really heightened action intensity. Like, I don't think we're missing... I, it is strange because you can see some competence in terms of story structure and you know it's been a little daring with some of the endings and the abruptness of a short story which I think is the fun of short stories too you don't always have to follow the the classic plot mountain you know format or something right but yeah, yeah the, it's the word to it's the word to word you know it's the <laughs> the, the car the car looks like a car but it has no engine <laughs> yeah. like it's yeah. it just is it's just too functional. It's just too functional and straightforward for me. It's mm-hmm. not what I come to fiction for, let alone like short stories, which I think I would prefer the big swings on the short stories. Yeah, yeah for sure. My please continue will be one thing that, again, this comes from the story I like the most about Mars. Keep going with parent-sibling relationships. Or no, sorry, not parent-sibling, parent-child is what I meant to say. I mm-hmm. think the romance is not working. It's been very weak. Like the... The infidelity in that story worked because it was not so explicit and had little moments to reveal it and was not it was not wonderful places like I just never need to see a euphemism like that written ever again please <laughs> not by someone who's not like writing 16 year old like writing fan fiction on twilight message boards or whatever like and even that would be yes. way more explicit frankly anyway um, <laughs> I just think like in two with the Green Street story like when she was with her kid and he was ribbing her about like you know narcotics and and he was kind of making fun of her ignorance about that. There's also the exchange with his kids who are kind of, you know, banter and they're kind of sweet, but she, I just think some of those dynamics between them have been the best or at least have a little subtlety to them. So I think I'd like to see more of a parent kid kind of dynamics going forward and maybe another make it stop. Like, I think we can cut the sex scenes at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Unnecessary. Um, yeah. But yeah, I also like, Mine is is in general. I just I like some of the protagonist's characterizations because that's where I think that he puts most of his effort in in his writing is to develop mm-hmm. um, these characters' thoughts and these characters' personalities, which I I appreciate. Uh, his attempts at doing so I think that most of his protagonists are pretty distinctive and they have a glimmer at least of being really interesting so when we were talking about Betty who was on the Green Street one like yeah like I had very strong feelings about how mean she was to Paul like because we get to see all those things about her so that's that's great like that's definitely something that I want to see continue um, so the the characters that I thought had the best characterization were Virgil from Christmas Eve yeah, um, yeah. the Christmas Eve story and uh, Kirk who was the, the son from the Mars story right. and then Betty from Green Street like they have clear uh, clear personalities they have clear reactions to certain things that mm-hmm. I think he does really well yeah yeah I think there is a focus on narrator and main character that definitely pops a bit I, I don't know even pops feels bold to say but it's been a strong <laughs> point <laughs> I would say yeah. it's been yeah. something that it's like okay I understand the situation of this I understand the worldview, even if it's maybe a little inconsistent and so there is kind of a baseline competence clear maybe vision in that too he yeah he just seems like an outliner 
you know? Like, these are outlined in an interesting manner. A lot of them have a situation that deserves exploration, but it it just feels like outline writing, not I want to be in a poetic moment of interest writing. I don't yeah. know if that... I've mm-hmm. been, I feel like I've been trying to crack my own description of why this is not connecting with me this whole podcast, so <laughs> we'll see if any of them work, you know? <laughs> Works well for me, yeah. <laughs> well, let's end then, Amanda, by making a list. We always like to do a list segment just for fun in the first podcast episode. Uh, did this category make sense? This list, not category, but description, title? Yeah. Uh, yep. So Tom Hanks, uh, folks, if you don't know by now, is a famous American actor, been in many iconic films. I could not resist then when we had to do our list deciding a top three for the first half. I just think that if you're going to write fiction as a person who's in fiction a lot, we're going to cast you, you know? It's your burden to bear. So we're going to each construct a top three list, and it could be a moment or a whole character, either is fine, that you could imagine Tom Hanks doing. So it's like, what has he written here that could be fit for himself (laughs) as an actor? Um, You can interpret that however you want. Again, it could be a moment, a role, a character, just any of those things. Do you want to start off with your number three? Well, no, I made it, and it was a weird list I'll, I'll do my number three and then you know I'll put it back on yeah. you in the paris story that we didn't talk about about the famous um actor who's kind of cast aside does his little um press tour i'm gender flipping this but there his handler in that story i forget her name she's kind of like an authoritative pr person and kind of she gives that guy advice is very matter of fact with him and plays it straight but is also gentle when she can be she you know cut the classic kind but stern i think hanks has that he usually is a little more not oafish but he's kind of a kind gentler person but there are moments when he can be kind of like a wise play it straight figure so i thought Mm -hmm. that kind of role i know it's a gender flip but obviously we can you know invent whatever we'd like i could see him doling out that kind of advice keeping somebody straight you know yeah i i think that would be a a good one he's definitely even like when he played forrest gump he was kind of giving advice um even though he played somebody who had yeah in his way yeah um my number three was the protagonist from Three Exhausting Weeks. So huh. <laughs> specifically, I was thinking of like when the protagonist is uh, being forced to run oh, and yeah. do like the yoga stretches and stuff like that. And the, his neighbor is like standing there watching him and being like, man, what got into you? And then as they run together, Anna laps him and then slaps his butt. And is like add a baby or add a boy or whatever. I was like, I could see him doing that. Maybe that's just because like his Forrest Gump character was really good at running. But like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, I could imagine him being somebody who like plays with the idea of like uh, doing something against his will, but still doing it anyway because he's like nice or whatever. Yeah, that's the key thing, right? Is that he, his face and responses and and witty, charming dialogue say, I'm okay with this, even if internally he's like, this kind of annoys me, I don't like this. But he just kind of, he's like a smile and bear it and just like make make a positive moment of this kind of a guy. So yeah, that's a great Mm -hmm. pick. Yeah, completely agree. My number two, um, in Green Street, the guy, the main guy, the guy she hates so much. Paul. (laughs) Yeah, Paul Ligaris. Ligaris. I I think the thing I pictured most seeing him in that role was just the whole 
like he dresses maybe a little too casually and kind of has a nonchalance about him. I think uh, his his role with the kids to me is the most Tom Hanksian though because he's so good with all the kids and welcomes it. it. Isn't like going out of his way to be like a goof. He doesn't seem like the goof parent, right? Who's like, yeah, you know, drink a beer, kid, or I'll like throw the football at you. Or what, like he, I don't think he's the the loud version of that. But he yeah. just kind of is like, yeah, I'll hang out with some kids and we can maybe learn something. And you know, he's laid back about it. He's not going to stress out if. They, I could just picture if they break the telescope, he's not going to freak. You know, he'd just be like, ah, right. you know, let's see. And so, yeah, I can picture him with a bag of ham, just kind of in a relaxed mode, maybe coming off <laughs> Castaway vibes, bearded, <laughs> bearded Hanks. Um, so I thought that, again, the, the negativity in that story is what maybe throws the role. So we'd have to maybe make the character hate him less <laughs> if it was a real role. But yeah, that was what I picked. It would really highlight, though, like how, how, unoffensive Paul has been the right. entire time right, if right. Tom Hanks were to play that character though totally <laughs> yeah um, for my number two I chose um, the protagonist from Alan Bean plus four which was terrible story but the reason that I chose that is it's the same character as the one that I chose from Exhausting Weeks right I mean it's it's the same guy different narrative voice this one is the nerdy side of um, the protagonist so and I can totally see Tom Hanks playing a dude who's like so into space and so into like right. whatever it is that he wants to be into and just like completely just like nerding out on that and super hyper focused on it I think that he would do really well with that your connections have been strong and very literal because he did an Apollo you know he was space nerd kind of guy in that movie too yeah it's a good connection number one then my number one the understated kind of suave and confidence of the man in New York City in that acting story which I think was my second favorite I just didn't pick it because Actually, I don't know why. I think that was my second favorite about the young lady in the 70s or 80s who's like trying to make it there. Now, that and that character in that story is a gay man. Does Hanks ever play a gay man in any? I couldn't think of one. Philadelphia. Oh, there we go. Okay, so maybe that's why. Because I feel like there was some deep memory bank where I thought he would be. He would be affected with this. Now, this man is kind of a little more. I don't know, goofy or something, kind of sillier. The the apartment's aesthetic doesn't feel very Hanks to me, like filled with tchotchkes and stuff. Just kind of a, it's warm, but it's, I don't know, it's like a little overdone or something. But I think Hanks, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's the confidence, it's the wryness about everything, the wisdom. It's he's friendly, right? Takes her in and is very open and and helpful and everything. Not not judgmental, you know. He's also really yeah. assured. Has has that bigger perspective on things and very practical so i just think all the traits are there of the hanks performance and i just think i can also for some reason maybe it's because of his age and when he came up in movies but i can just picture him in those decades better like i can picture him in the clothes and the look of the 70s or 80s or something um Mm -hmm. so yeah that that one felt like perfect i can picture him leaning out of a cab and yelling at someone he knows (laughs) in a friendly Mm -hmm. manner um so that one i think was the number one to me i again wouldn't know how he'd do with some of the aesthetics but you know as, as a character goes it to me was the most hanks yeah, and he's very like protective over somebody too and I, totally. I, I could see him playing a character like that for sure yeah, yeah. um my number one was virgil 
the protagonist in right. the Christmas Eve story. He's, you know, in the beginning, he's wholesome, he's welcoming, he's got the whole war background, which brings to mind um, the war movies that Tom Hanks has done. And the super sentimental scenes with his family, especially with, like, his son on his lap and his daughter snuggling the mom on the couch. Like, that, that to me, is, is like, the epitome of, like, what we often see Tom Hanks as in these movies. And then, but the war scenes, too, like, the the super serious looks on his face and and stuff, like, the close-ups of the emotional scenes and the... The horrors of the war, I think, um, also are very Tom Hanks. Something about the platonic ideal of the American family, you know, yeah. <laughs> that is very yeah. Hanksian. And who yeah. knows if that even should be the ideal, but it certainly is. And so, yeah, that's <laughs> that stable, you know, dad did a noble task and now lives a quiet life with his quiet, loving wife. <laughs> it's just exactly. Yeah. And the phone call, too, I think you nailed it, too, because I can picture the transition from the, the lap hang with the kids and being kind of a goof or having fun. And then, you know, the stern talk on the phone and the undertones is serious he has that regret how he mentioned the the date and he shouldn't have the anniversary I, yeah it's all there right it's a good role right well mr hanks you've written some decent roles for yourself maybe that was the task all along <laughs> maybe that was the secret motive behind this <laughs> otherwise kind of forgettable collection thus far <laughs> Yeah, he just pulled from his movies, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of, in a, in a sense, yeah, in a sense. These are all the friendly Hanks, Hankses we know and love. Yeah. Any final thoughts on the first half of Uncommon Type by Tom Hanks? Nope. I'm Excellent. Good. Okay, well, we'll be back in a week from when you're listening to this, dear listener, with the second half. So we'll do the same format, probably. A few stories per person yeah. and, you know, some segments to close it out with our final overall thoughts. So check us out then. We are, as I mentioned at the beginning, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at that handle, all one word, at the Lightly Literary Podcast. So follow us there for updates and other things going on. If you can rate us on an app or something, if you're listening to this on, uh, you know, Spotify, iTunes, that kind of thing we appreciate it five star ratings help a lot and so thanks in advance for that and until next time as always we'll see you between the pages 